Hi, this is CJ just before the show reminding you to subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, why not rate and review us? Give us a five-star rating. Write a little review saying how much you like the show. It really helps Apple promote us. Thank you. It would mean a lot to me. Cheers. You're listening to Movie Land on ABC Local Radio, digital and online. Hello and welcome to Movie Land. I'm CJ Johnson. Thank you for joining me. Were you a fan of the band Oasis? Even if you weren't, you have to acknowledge that they certainly had a seismic impact around the mid-90s on rock and roll music. There's a new documentary about them called Oasis Supersonic. It's directed by Matt Whitecross. It is playing in cinemas throughout Britain and it is coming up in Australia as part of the BBC First British Film Festival, playing a whole bunch of different dates all over Australia in late October through early and mid-November. Go search for the BBC First British Film Festival website to find out those specific sessions and you can book a ticket. This episode is all about that movie. I'm going to interview the director, Matt Whitecross from London, then Jim Flanagan and I are going to dissect the film. Then at the end, Jim and I are going to save a little bit of time to talk about HBO's new show based on the movie Westworld. Oasis there, of course. You're listening to CJ Johnson on Movie Land. The film Oasis Supersonic is directed by Matt Whitecross, and I spoke to him from his home in London. Um, first, congratulations on the film. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Um, and one of the things that really struck me towards the end was how emotional I got because of how emotional Noel was getting on the audio. Mm-hmm. It was something about how he was explaining the feeling that they got at that concert and how they affected their fans. And that was something I was not expecting. No, it's true. A lot of the things uh, that we covered in those interviews seemed to provoke uh, emotion in them. I mean, it's you know, it's, not, it's never going to be the Oprah Winfrey show, right? But it was one of those things that they never really had the chance to sit down for as long as we did and talk about uh, subjects in as much detail. And I think... They tend to live in the moment, really, um, Liam in particular. So they don't sit down and talk a lot about Nebworth. I mean, I think for both of them, it's the first time they'd seen any footage from the gig. Hmm. So it was, it, it was one of those things, and particularly if you start talking about the opportunities that they had. I mean, as, as much as the, the world was stacked against them, they came from working class background, wrong side of the tracks, no money, uh, no musical friends, or you know, so no kind of step up into the music world. But I remember talking to Noel about it and saying, well, could it happen again? And him saying, well, I'm not sure if it could. And, and what a tragedy that you get to a state where, you know, we live in a talent show era where that's considered the way that you become famous now as you, you appear on, on X Factor or whatever. So I think there's definitely, I'm sure there's, there's some element of emotion in his voice when he's talking about that. And also looking back, you know, they're, they're 20 years older and it was an uh, amazing time in their lives, one of the most amazing time in a lot of people's lives who were there so I, I think yeah this is it's inevitable you start looking back at those incidents and you and you're moved by the footage you see yes it's it's extraordinary and just watching the imagery of the fans how those anthemic songs in particular you know look back at anger and wonder wall and champagne supernova just 
for some reason, I mean, they're incredible songs and they're anthemic and they're goosebumpy, but they, they connected with that particular very British audience in what feels to me a very British way. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, I don't think Oasis could have been born anywhere else. There was uh, something about them, that sense of, I mean, you have, you have obviously poor kids forming bands in lots of other countries, but there was something about that sense of being stuck where you are and having no opportunities and yet still feeling inside you that there's something amazing on the horizon, that something you and me, you and the people in this field are going to change the world. So I think that was that was something I really responded to. I mean, it definitely felt that there was something happening in this country at that moment in time that we'd had a long period of conservative rule and things were suddenly changing. You know, whatever people think of what happened after uh, conservatism when we had the, the Blair era, it definitely felt like things were becoming more positive, not only, only socially and culturally, but, you know, in, in lots of ways, I think, politically. So, um, yeah, Oasis seemed to be the embodiment of that, that they were a group of kids who felt that actually things were going to change. If you think that you had grunge music and, and kind of uh, dance music, house music just before them, mm. it was almost like a fusion of those, those two things. It's like the aggression of a grunge, but without the nihilism and the... And the, the euphoria of dance music but without the kind of it, it being too vague and and uh, and actually giving it a bit more meaning yeah well, there's a great quote from noel about how he wanted to essentially wrest the audience back from from electronic dance music and also i've noticed and this is partly to do with you know your filmmaking and your choices editing the film is that Noel continually introduces the band as not only the greatest, we can get to that a little bit later, but he always says the greatest rock and roll band. He insists upon the rock and roll nature of Oasis. Yes, yeah, I think, uh, you know, they, they became caricatured and they ended up being, uh, you know, appearing in the tabloid papers over here particularly as a kind of pop band. And he can write a great you know, kind of simple tune that really connects with people, whether that's, uh, you know, it could be done in the back in anger, it could be Wonderwall, but I think in his mind, they've got, they've got the kind of the, the rock and roll swagger of, of uh, the Stones or of uh, the Who. He never wanted them to feel like they were some kind of manufactured boy band. Mm. And I mean, that, I don't know if the Who ever said it, but that famously Sam Cutler said, introducing the Rolling Stones, the greatest rock and roll band in the world, which Noel seems to have appropriated. Right. Well, I think, I mean, they had that, that self-belief, yeah. which, you know, if you're, if you're looking at it the wrong way, is arrogance, is, you know, it can, can be off-putting. But I think there was always a slightly tongue-in-cheek sense to it. I mean, maybe not when you're performing in front of quarters of a million people in a field, but I think <laughs> when they're doing the interviews, sometimes the humour is lost, I think. Sometimes when you're reading something in black and white that was intended as a joke or is intended as slightly, you know, as you're kind of bragging, but it's, but it's fun, I think sometimes that gets lost in translation. And, I, and one of the things that... I was really struck by when we were rewatching the film recently is how how funny it is. You know, I think they are very, very funny. Yeah. Very passionate, very, very smart, but they're very, you know, the, what comes across is the humour, the kind of the camaraderie of those kids together and, and the sense of fun. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you see it as a story, as your film tells it, as a narrative story, it is a scriptwriter couldn't write it better. It's a fairy tale. It's these two brothers, one of them you know, certain things happened in his family life and the other one it didn't happen to. One of them is cheeky, one of them is thoughtful. I mean, it's incredible how, how it plays out as, as a classic narrative. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's why when we found that interview where they're, they're talking about Cain and Abel yeah. and they talk about, the, you know, the, the Nebworth being biblical, there are definitely these resonances. That was their background. They had this, you know, they, they'd, been, they'd grown up, even though they weren't religious themselves, 
they came from a Catholic background. So that's definitely in the imagery in their songs and so on. And I think they had a sense of their own importance. Um, I think a lot of bands uh, after the 60s and 70s ended up, you're talking in, in terms of going, well, you know, we just we just do what we can. You know, they didn't have that same kind of swagger. And I think they brought that back into, into British music at that time. Mm. Now, one thing that I found very noticeably absent from their recollections, and we'll talk about your process in a moment, which is you're using audio interviews rather than on-camera interviews, is that Mm. they don't seem to ever mention any musical influences, ever. No other bands get talked about in the entire film except a brief mention of, like, the bands that they toured with or that Noel worked for. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a conscious decision to try and take them out for any artistic reason. It was more just to do with time. Um, We had a whole section on the Beatles near the beginning. We had a whole section on the Stone Roses. There's some great Stone Roses songs. In the end, it it was more one of those things where we ended up having a a little bit of Stone Roses in there to try and tell that story quickly. Um, When we we talk about Liam being hit on the head with a hammer. So, for example, (laughs) with the Stone Roses, um, they basically ended up being... Noel had... uh, it's been to their first, one of the early gigs, and Stone Roses played a huge part in in early Oasis in terms of the influence. In terms of Liam said he, when he went to see them, um, he went along to see them at a place which had used to be called the Carousel, and was then called the International. And he saw them uh, there about a few weeks after his brother. So Noel went to see them, and it was at that gig that he bumped into one of the guys from the Spiral Carpets, which uh, allowed him to get a foot into the music industry. Liam went along with a bunch of friends and he was inspired to form a band because he'd seen the Stone Roses. So there were all these kind of connections and it turned out that the Carousel, what was then the International, became, was actually the place that the parents, their parents had met and fallen for each other. So there's all these kind of connections. There was a lovely sequence, but it took kind of five, ten minutes to tell all that and it just wasn't possible. Mm. Then the, the whole Beatles section, we had a whole area where we had uh, Noel talking about their, their importance and that he was there was a rumour that when he was born into the world that um, the, uh, the hospital radio was playing Sergeant Peppers and all these kind of things, which are very funny. And you can imagine the way that he tells it. Yeah. And we did a little mini animation sequence for it. But again, there was just no time. And then when I showed it to the music supervisor a few weeks into the edit and I was showing them, they played I'm the Walrus at the end of most of their gigs. And they played it at, we had some footage of them playing it at King Tut's. So I was like, this is great. This kind of, it's such a quick way of telling the audience the importance of that band without having to get into too much detail. And he said, well, look, if you want to put a Beatles track in there, let me put it into context. You can have the entire Oasis back catalogue or you can have one Beatles track. So which is more important to you? <laughs> so at that point, we decided the Beatles couldn't be part of the film. So it's just, it's one of those things. There's, there wasn't really enough time, but it's definitely something I miss. And there's a lot of things that were in the film at different points that we had to take out, which I miss. Right. Um, the original cut of the film was about eight hours long. And it didn't even have half of the scenes that are in there currently. So it was just, yeah, it was impossible to try and squeeze it all in. How did you decide on format initially? Um, One of the ways you present the information is you use audio interviews, but no on-camera interviews. Uh, Tell us about your decision-making process sort of from the early stages. Well, in terms of what we were going to cover, I went in to meet Noel the first time and he asked me, probably the second conversation we had, second question he asked me was, um, is what's the film going to be? And I hadn't really had a chance to agree anything with the producers, but we'd, we were talking about Nebworth anyway. So I felt, well, that seems a very good place to, to begin and end the film because it was really when you were considered to be at your peak and the rise to fame was, is, is what's most exciting and, and what's unique about most bands. Once you become big, 
then you're a big band. But, but on the way up, everyone does it differently. Mm. So that feels like a great way of focusing it. Otherwise, I, I was I worried if we're doing the whole Oasis film, there's enough information and footage to film you know, to, to fill a miniseries so that we couldn't really do it justice. And then as far as the, the, the way of, of putting it together and the techniques we used, I just, I've had in the past, when it, even when I've been doing in-camera interviews, I've often switched the camera off and just recorded to start off with, just to warm everyone up. And it always seems to get much better results. Hmm. Um, on the other hand, it's a time we, we, were, we knew we were dealing with a time where not a huge amount of footage would exist. We didn't know what was going to exist. So that was, it was always a balance. We always thought, well, look, if it doesn't work, then we'll, we'll do Talking Heads in the last week of the shoot. Hmm. And, um, and Noel had said to me in that first meeting, he said, look, I just... I don't want this just to be a kind of nostalgic exercise to wallow in the past. I don't want this to feel like a, a bunch of older rockers looking back on their youth and talking about the good old days. And again, the more that I thought about putting talking heads in there, there's something that creates a slight barrier between the audience now and the past. You know, if you keep on cutting to people now sitting in a, in the strange ambient space of a studio, I didn't, it didn't really kind of make sense to me. Mm. And then once it became clear that we weren't going to have two brothers, we were only get, going to get single brothers on single days. Then I just thought, well, what's the best way of creating a, a conversation that's impossible now? Mm. Well, the best way to do it, if we do the audio interviews, then we can create that conversation artificially mm. and artistically or whatever, and put, put the, their vo- they put the same questions to them and put their voices together. And that seemed to work quite well. And was it an accident or was it always planned? Uh, and by accident, I mean, did you discover in the editing room those bits where you've aligned old archival footage of them saying words or sentences similar enough that it looks like they're saying that moment in the audio? Right. Well, it was one of those things that just, yeah, it just came together. Um, Fiona, who's my producer, was she was just joking about it and saying, well, wouldn't it be great if you could... We had some footage with no audio in it in the boardwalk. Yeah. And she was laughing and saying, well, can't we just stick on another interview? You'll probably get away with it. <laughs> it works. Well, it's all right. Let's try it. It's kind of outrageous. And it's not it's not the dumb thing in documentary. But actually, it, it, we, we kind of... There was such playfulness in the interviews. I thought, yeah. well, maybe we we've got carte blanche in some ways to have a similar attitude of playfulness in the edit suite and once we put it in there it seemed to be getting the right kind of reaction i thought everyone would just laugh and roll their eyes but actually they seem to kind of buy it and the weird the weird thing is i mean obviously you picked up on it but some people are just assuming that it's that it's real which right. is bizarre when you think noel's doing all the voices right <laughs> they just they you're just swept up in the moment i guess you just kind of buy it yeah your voice you know your mind wants to think that what you're looking at is is 100 real and you've also used sort of photo montage and animation techniques that are a little bit terry gilliam gilliam but they're also a little bit uh great rock and roll swindle right yeah well there wasn't it was again it was one of those things that we kind of found our feet as we went along so i assumed we'd probably have someone doing doing drawings because they've got such great faces and such <laughs> memorable faces so I, so we started looking at that and we talked to a couple of animators and Everything that we looked at just felt like it wasn't quite in keeping with the raw footage that we were getting in. And then I, I was talking to a friend of mine who does all the visual effects on everything I've ever worked on. And he uh, his, his name's Mark, and he has a small team who work in central London. And, and he was saying he came into the office and he was looking at our desk, which at that point was this huge kind of mess of, of old set lists and enemies and videotapes and everything else all scattered all over the place and contact sheets particularly. He was saying, well, why don't we do something where we're just looking down on all this research and it comes to life? And then that felt to me like it was in keeping with what we were already doing. Mm. Uh, No, I find that works perfectly. Now, there's some archival footage that I'm just surprised exists, like 
why was there footage from that club where they got discovered and signed? You know? There's no reason. Yeah, there's, well, like you said, it was, it was the, this is the era before mobile phones. Yeah. This is the era before anyone thinks to keep everything. You know, yeah. I think with bands now, there's, there's things are slightly more meticulously uh, kept, but I don't think anyone had great expectations of this band. So the only reason, and when we, when we started off, when I met Liam the first time, Liam said, look, we should have made this film 10 years ago. I want you to make this film. I just don't know how you can do it because there's no footage from that time. We were very, we were pretty strict about not allowing people to film us backstage. And I, at that point, I just lied through my teeth. I said, like, no, no, we've got great footage. It's going to be amazing just to get him on board. But as soon as, but for whatever reason, when we started doing the interviews, um, they kept on picking out moments that they thought were key to them. And they might have been, you know, obviously, the first, the first gig where they got, um, uh, got seen by and then signed by Alan McGee. Mm. But then also at the moments like their first trip to Japan or, you know, signing records uh, on the release of the first album or arriving in the States and um, uh, having a, this notorious gig at Whiskey A Go-Go where they screwed everything up. All those moments, they were like, look, they're really important, but I just don't know how you can illustrate them because no footage exists. Yeah. But we had a great team of researchers and we put the feelers out and the brothers gave us a hand and the management gave us a hand and said, look, if you need to use us as a foot in the door, we're, we're there, we've got your back. And weirdly, all these key moments seem to uh, come back. I mean, for the most part, there's the odd, the odd one where like in Amsterdam, no footage existed of the drunken brawl. But other than that, a lot of things came back and we were really surprised. And, um, and I can't really explain it other than that we were lucky because mm. no one thought that anything was going to happen with this band. So they never, you know, there's no reason why they should be filming them. That first gig at King Tut's, yes. it just happened to be a Japanese student um, who was there and she was a fan of 18 Wheeler. And, and then this other band came on who weren't supposed to be playing and she thought, well, I might as well film them as well. So that, that was just complete luck. Um, and that we managed to, uh, Fiona, again, uh, my producer, tracked her down through Instagram. And she knew, had a little bit of information because Alan McGee used to have a tape of that and they'd lost it through the years, probably given it to some television company or something. So we could, didn't even have the footage. But he managed to track her down and she still had the tapes. That's astonishing because I was wondering why that existed. I assumed the Whiskey A Go-Go thing. I, I assumed that maybe Whiskey, Whiskey A Go-Go filmed everything because it was Whiskey A Go-Go. Yeah, well, is that? But, but no one seemed to, like, when you contacted them, they said they didn't have any footage. But then someone else, who knew someone else, had that footage. There, someone had put <laughs> some of it online at one point. So we knew it existed. Right. But then it was like, well, how much of it existed and what's the sound like? All these kind of things that you don't really think about when you're watching something and then suddenly become a big deal when you're making a film. I found it hard to sit through that just out of embarrassment for them. He was this, <laughs> well, he was this great band playing terribly. Yeah. And I think I think the um, the but it's interesting talking to, to Liam about it because Noel is still mortified when he watches that footage. I mean, he can kind of with the passage of time, he's come to terms with it to a degree. But it was it really was their big moment. This is this is the moment that every band dreams of, and they screwed it up by taking too many drugs and not caring. And I think Liam Liam's attitude is like, look, if it had just been another gig, then no one would be talking about it twenty years later. I, I can assure you. But because we screwed up, he said we screwed up things beautifully. We did everything beautifully. We, we, when we were big, we were beautifully big. And when we were terrible, we were beautifully terrible. We said it was like, that was, that was the thing for us. We just, we never did things by halves. The dichotomy that I really found was that there was this attitude of, we don't give a fuck, essentially, combined yeah. with this thing that when you saw them going out onto stage um, at the big, big concerts, but even really any gig except that one where they all had taken too much meth, they, they really looked 
determined to do a professional job, more so even than the Rolling Stones from some of, you know, from some of the 60s footage. You know, like they really, they don't look like larrikins who don't give a fuck. They actually look like people who really want to do a good performance. Yeah, definitely. And I think that the they they ended up playing up to this image later on in their lives, but they were very professional and they were, Liam still gets angry when people talk about him being on drugs on stage because I think there were moments where he'd get drunk and stuff later on but I think in those early years particularly he said he tried it a few times he'd go on stage stoned or he'd go on stage a bit drunk but he said that it really it, it just didn't didn't he couldn't deliver his performance he said afterwards like the, all bets were off but when he was going on he might have a quick swig of a can of beer just to settle himself but he wouldn't he wouldn't get drunk he said he couldn't connect with the audience and he really freaked him out mm. And um, yeah, I think again, walking on stage, they did. They didn't seem to get nerves, even those really big gigs. In fact, the, the bigger the gig, the easier it was. I think he said he only got freaked out when he was playing to five people in a room because hmm. he could really connect with their eyes. Once he was playing to quarter of a million in a field, he said it was the easiest thing in the world. But I think he's. I remember someone talking to me when we'd, we'd been doing interviews together, and there were a couple of publications he wasn't speaking to, and I said, like, "Oh, you know, why is that?" And it's because they were questioning his professionalism and the fact that there's someone who said he turned up late for an interview and he's like, I'm never late. That's his thing, which I think is very different to the way that, that people perceive him. Mm. Now both brothers he wakes up every morning at five and he goes for a seven mile run, you know? Well, now both performers are executive producers. Did they, was there anything that they asked you to chop out of it? No, they gave us complete uh, free reign, which was amazing. Right. I did. I kind of, I mean, that was the first question well, not the first question I had, but it was one of one of the questions I had with the producers early on was that, look, we need their involvement. We can't make the film without them. But I don't really want to get into a situation where they're second guessing the kind of film we're making or what can be in it. And everyone said, no, 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 don't worry. It's fine. Like We're, we're going to we will show it to them. They we're going to show it to each brother a couple of times and and they're going to give us notes, their opinions. But we don't have to listen to them, which was seemed like a great arrangement. And all the notes they gave us were were really smart and didn't. And not what you might expect. There was nothing to do with vanity. It was much more like, um, you know, the, the sentiments that Noel uh, voices at the end where he's talking about, you know, kind of end of an era and uh, could it happen again and the connection with the fans. That was all great and it was in the longer cut. And I took it out because I felt like, well, look, it's, we're, we're running out of time. We don't have any time to tell the story. We've got a three-hour cut. What can we lose? Well, this isn't a scene. It's just him talking mm. so I took it all out and that when we showed it to him the first time we had a kind of two and a half hour cut and he said hang on we spent a lot of time talking about the legacy of Oasis and none of that's in the film and I think that's a shame so it was that sort of thing and, and also he just said oh it's too long which is true <laughs> so it wasn't there was nothing there was nothing in terms of oh well, he can't say that about me or you know I, I, yeah. I, did, I need to get another dig in there's no, nothing kind of petty about it at all good on him i mean you cannot accuse a single oasis song of being too long so they know what they're talking about <laughs> um, exactly well no he's Noel had said to me his exact words were it's too long um a band documentary can't be longer than the greatest hits yeah but their greatest hits is a double album so i'm not sure that's true but anyway <laughs> well you can make a little longer for a dvd or something but how have, yeah. um how have audiences been in cinemas in Britain I can imagine that it's pretty interesting to feel the vibe it's been great I haven't sat in on many screenings because we've been doing doing other stuff and we're working on the next thing and, and so on but I we were there for the Manchester premiere oh, well wow. we, we had a kind of funny night where we ended up um, doing two premieres kind of one for each brother 
and one in London, one in Manchester on the same night. And I ended up catching a helicopter with Liam so he could do both. And um, and we arrived in Manchester. And the scene there was ridiculous. People were up in the, you know, they're dancing in the aisles. I know everyone writes that in um, in in uh, about uh, big shows and stuff, but they really were dancing in the aisles, and there was like sloshing beer around. It was like being at a gig. So that was an amazing experience. And I think, yeah, maybe they should do a kind of bouncing ball sing along version because it was really seemed to me you know, people were kind of emotional and they were singing along back to the screen and cheering and so on. It was really great. I'm not expecting every night to be the same as the premiere, but it really seems to be having a good effect. Are the brothers not hanging out together anymore? Are they? What's their current state? They don't speak, no, the but so neither brother speaks to each other. They don't uh, have a, have seem to have any relationship at the moment. I mean, I hope that would change. Um, it's kind of in the past. It's it's kind of thawed from time to time, and they've been texting each other, but not since I've met them. Um, and it seems to be I was hoping if anything that the band talking about the band and showing them the footage and um, reliving the old days might help and might might at least get them to be friends again but it seems to have the opposite effect because every time either of them are interviewed they slag the other one off so it seems to be getting worse if anything but I hope it would change in the future I'm sure it will but it's probably just you know like anything as you get older and more time is spent on earth you know those distances increase so (laughs) it'll just get longer between makeups Maybe, maybe, you know, I'd love them to get back together. I mean, you know, that's, that's always the debate, isn't it? Is will, will the band reunite and should they reunite? Is there any point in doing, you know, who are you doing it for? But I feel like when they split, they were still a great band. They were kind of, you know, arguably, I was talking to someone the other day saying they were at their peak, that they, they played, when they played Wembley just before the split, it was, he said it was the best gig he'd ever been to, um, that they had played and he'd, he'd seen them like 50 times or something ridiculous. So I, I don't know. I kind of feel like it would be great to, you know, the fans want it. People want it. Um, and I just, but on a personal level, having met them both and having met their family, I think it's, it's a shame they can't speak to each other. So it's very sad. It is sad. You're right. Well, if they do get together and they do go on tour, you'll be the one I hope that they call to, to make the concert film because it would be great. But that, that would be lovely. I think it might kill me, but I'd enjoy it. Yeah. Matt Whitecross's film... Oasis Supersonic. I'll give you the details after this. Matt, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you very much. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. That was Matt Whitecross, who directed Oasis colon Supersonic, and it's playing as part of the BBC First British Film Festival. So find their website. You can find out when it's playing. Of course, if you're listening overseas, that'll be different for you. In Britain, of course, it's playing in the cinemas, and so it should. So someone who's seen the film, along with myself, is Jim Flanagan, our music movie analyst. Uh, extraordinaire. In fact, he's reviewed the film for my uh, review blog, filmmafia.com.au. So when you finish listening to us talk about it, you can read his review. That's all one word, filmmafia.com.au. Hi, Jim. How are you? Howdy, CJ. I'm well. So just before we go into the film itself, Mm. uh, what was your relationship to Oasis? Is your relationship to Oasis? That's an an interesting question. Uh, It's it's a little standoffish. I can't can't say I was ever really 
a fan either at the time or or now. Really? Well, yeah. And uh, look, I and you know, the, we'll, we'll talk about it, I guess when we talk about at the film. But yeah. the whole the whole Britpop wars between Oasis and Blur. I don't personally feel that history will be hugely kind to that period of British musical history. In terms really? Of, well, in terms of the Oasis Blur divide, I think it's a hugely diversionary. Um, uh, look at what was happening in British music at the time that was far more interesting. And huh. I quite look, I quite, I quite like some of the side projects that Damon Albarn's been involved in. I don't mind the second Gorillaz album, but I'm not really a huge fan of either of them in particular. But one of the things that I like about this film is that it alludes to um, the way that the British musical landscape was changing at the time and why it was so obsessed with these these two groups. So look, to me personally, I, I always found musically Oasis were really the beginning of a period of musical history that was um, increasingly dominated by these intensely derivative, very musically conservative, backwards looking um, artists. And I don't mean that with, with any personal disrespect to any of those artists, in, in, including Oasis. But I really think, you know, the industry was changing. This is the last time in the recording um, industry that super bands that sold squillions of records really could, bef- arguably before the internet came along and ruined everything and, and um, you know, licensing revenues disappeared. Um, and I think Oasis is really that, that, that moment in, in musical history where the industry sensed a massive sea change, got a little bit scared, and we're really looking to harness something a lot safer, more derivative, mm. and backwards-looking. Yeah, that's interesting too, and that's that points a lot to, I think, the wise choice of the film, mm. just going to that concert. Yeah. Where, where, what's, what's the concert called? The, the Nebworth concert, the ne- yeah, which Nebworth bookends concert, the yeah. film. Yeah, yes. so the film is about, basically the birth of the brothers through to mm. the Nebworth concert, and it is it is an exclamation mark. It's a climax. And there, there's stuff said at the end of the film that pretty much acknowledges, the brothers themselves acknowledge that they were never to reach such such heights. That really was the sort of the, the climax of their career, even though their career was, that was only the first fifth or so well, of their actual longevity. But I, And I, I think the director um, uh, and producer have very wisely chosen to focus the film on that. And yeah. I, think, I think it really works mm. because that's an explosive... Really fantastically intense story about a you know an inc- extraordinarily meteoric rise of, of, of a recording artist. But if you also look at Oasis's co- career post Nebworth, they were already working on the Be Here Now album, which was their massive third album. And personally, I think it's a horrible, horrible record. Right. And they're there, and it, it only goes downhill for them right. in the studio. Yeah, they, from you're right. There. Be Here Now was a huge record, but that. That doesn't even get mentioned. I mean, no. this, this movie is actually very disciplined in its containment. Yeah. It, it, it won't go past their second album, What's the Story of Morning Glory? It yeah. won't go past that concert. Yeah. That concert does attract 250,000 people. Yeah, so apparently, it, a fifth it, of the it population, is a apparently a fifth of the population of the UK applied for tickets to that concert, which is incredible. And yeah. again, I don't really think you can, you can, you can fathom... Uh, an artist capturing the public imagination the way that that did. And that's yeah. what I really like about this film. Even though personally, I'm not hugely interested in the music. I think they capture the mania of it in mm. a similar way. And curiously, I think it's, it, you know, it's interesting that it has a similar structure to Ron Howard's Eight Days a Week mm-hmm. in capturing a, um, a cultural phenomenon, which, mm. is, which is what I think this film does 
really well. And that's interesting because I speak to Matt. I spoke to Matt a, a little mm. bit about that. I said to him that I felt that you know Oasis were oh so British. You know they were, and yes. the, you could see in the fans the footage of the fans, British fans, just how deeply they were touched. And yeah. I always felt a little bit like an outsider. Mm. I, I appreciated the as anthems. You were, you were a fan as an Oasis I fan? I was a you... fan, but I didn't feel like I was part of the club. Right, like, okay, I, I got goosebumps yeah. and sung along yeah. to Don't Look Back in Anger. Of course, yeah. I couldn't help it. You know, there were times when that song almost brought me to tears because it is so goosebumpy. Yeah, yeah. But I always felt like I wasn't actually allowed because I did not grow up in their Britain. Mm, and their yes. Britain is not just Britain. Yeah. And I didn't grow up in Britain. Yeah. Um, it is also a particular class of Britain. Absolutely. You know, and I feel like you kind of had to be a part of their club, which is a big club. That's yep. a lot of people, yep. um, to be really allowed to have been an Oasis head. Yeah, and yeah. I know that's silly. I know that's self-imposed, but that's how I feel. No, it's not. And I think class is a very important point. And, um, you know, as someone who's lived in the UK and Australia a lot, the, the British class system functions in a way that, that I think people who don't let, live there often often cannot fathom. And, you know, these are these are guys from um, a housing estate in Burnage, and my father was from a housing estate in Burnage as well, actually. Oh, really? The same, the same part of, of southern Manchester. Oh. And there was always a massive class divide in the Brit Wars phenomenon between the arty, university-educated, literate, internationally-minded blur and the sort of proud, staunch, oh. working-class Mancunian backwards looking musically anyway you know sort of yardbirds beetles stones yeah. faces mining um f- much more hyper masculine approach of oasis that right. was always one of the main fault lines in that whole and the north south thing as well you know blue were university boys from from london and these guys were right were yeah that's those from that that makes perfect sense, and also I, 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 you know, I always thought that the lyrics, which are obviously so, sort of, they seemed so abstract and elliptical <laughs> and poetic and everything, and I always thought that maybe they just were. But then when I spoke to Matt about what those songs meant to young British people, mm. he was like, oh yeah, and he just instantly sort of nailed it, and yeah. the songs actually do resonate yep. in a way. He said they're all essentially about the fact that. You know, we might be down, but we're never out. There's hope on the horizon. We are always rising. We are always, you know, kind of describing the exact same sentiments of tub thumping by Chumbawamba. You know, (laughs) it's like we get knocked down, but we get up again. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yes, yep. Which is a very kind of old fashioned again. Um, sort of trope of sort of English sort of working class masculinity. I think absolutely, but I think. I think he's he's made a he's made a really clever decision in sticking to those two albums because to me again as someone who doesn't really and hasn't really ever particularly liked the band yeah. I can absolutely still recognize it in those first two albums and I think the first one in particular you know there there's there's still there are still moments of really fantastic guitar pop on those right, records yeah, yeah. you know and there are you know obvious examples and you know a song like Wonderwall is so perfectly structured it's very difficult to dislike yeah but you notice that noel is so insistent every Mm. time he goes on stage to say rock and roll band he refuses to wear the pop moniker god knows why yes (laughs) (laughs) um it is and you're you're right it is very moving as well and another thing that i've written the movie or the music no the film the other something that i really liked about that and that i knew nothing about was that 
was that the film suggests this completely alternative explanation for that that sort of hyper masculine sort of rantings that Oasis are still known for in the Gallagher brothers. Um, and he, you know, he sort of overtly suggests that a lot of that stemmed from their you know, quite horrific childhood. Yeah. And I had no idea of the background of that. And there's some really quite um, moving footage of them confronting and talking about their abusive father. Yeah. And the impact specifically that he had on Noel in terms of, you know, seeking a refuge from this abusive household in his bedroom on his guitar. Yeah, I know. It's incredible, isn't it? Like, as I said to Matt, if you wrote it, it would be too pat, wouldn't it? Because mm, it's perfect. It would, yeah. The two brothers from yep. the housing estate, the father abuses one, yep. not the other. The one who's abused is the one who becomes a songwriter yep. who's sort of self-contained. Yep. And the one that's not abused is the one that's gregarious and outrageous yep. and sort of the front man and the singer. I mean, it's just... And the fact that they fight and split up and come back Absolutely. together. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think it... And, it, and he captures the, the... You know, and again, it's really good to just killing it dead at Nebworth. He captures... The, the sort of manic energy of both of them early yeah. on as well, and um, and I love the I love the, sequ- the the sequences with the animation where yeah me too they, where he's he's animated these sequences where the two Gallagher brothers are basically they're not even finishing each other's sentences they're sort of starting each other's sentences before they start and there's this sort of Ralph Steadman esque yeah um cartoon visuals to accompany them and it's really nice it really captures the the, the sort of craziness and the the, the often very charismatic energy that those two had particularly early on yeah that you are i was it was interesting to see it though so soon in the wake of eight days a week because mm. i mean they're funny but they weren't clever witty funny no. like the beatles you no, know you see the beatles who are the not. same age they're yeah. young 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 you know around the 20 mark and yep. you see the beatles being witty yeah. and the gallagher brothers are funny but it's it's just blokey fun you well, know it's it not it's not witty at all and it's this sort of constant sort of self-aggrandizing yeah. posturing yeah thing as well yeah which yeah. which again and i sort of felt this way about the film as well it's really entertaining for about an hour and then it gets a bit boring and I think that, I didn't I th- think so. I thought I think that the public had a similar um, uh, response to the, the Gallagher brothers after right. after three or four years as well. Well, they it were gets so intense. One note. Yeah, they yeah. were so intense. Well, that's how I think of them. I think of them as being like two of the uh, well that band as being one of the best anthem bands of all time but yeah. i can't think of what else they can do yeah whereas the beatles kind of not only could do everything but invented everything yeah, there's, look, there, look there's certainly there's certainly zero aesthetic development in the oasis discography yeah. i think arguably but i disagree with you that uh it was the film was only enjoyable for the first half in fact my anecdotal evidence was exactly an hour in with mm. 58 minutes to go yeah. or, or an hour to go it's like two hours two minutes um, I was ready to call it a night and resume in the morning and I just th- mm. kept giving it one more scene okay. and I ended up watching the next hour right. even though it was way past my bedtime and I was yeah. exhausted I it kept me going I, I actually okay. and the deeper it got into it and the closer it got to that concert I actually found myself even more engaged, I guess because I got to know the brothers so much more. Because mm. the first you, hour, yeah. there's a lot of the stuff we knew of from tabloids. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a lot of drunken brawling and this and that. But yeah. you started to hear them really talking about, I guess, as close as it comes to emotive things, mm. you know. Yeah, and when Noel disappears in San Francisco yeah. and I'd never heard about. And that's a really that interesting, was an interesting little side story. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, and they do. Look, and that's, that's why I like it as a film, because, you know, we, we're all familiar with the sort of self-aggrandizing public... 
um, silliness of the Gallagher brothers. But but the the information that you get about them and the way that you get to know them in the film, there's you know, as I said, there's this there's this domestic backstory that just really gently undercuts and mm. proposes a sort of all, quite alternative moving explanation for all of that behavior yeah i think and it's well introduced like it's yeah. very subtly slipped in yes. there it's great it's it doesn't very bang you over the head. yeah yeah, yeah no, absolutely now what did you think of the sort of the multi audio only interview format i liked it and i like um i like that approach generally that um what's the the producer's name asif kapadia who did who did center and center and amy amy as well it's a very similar template to yeah. those two i I like it, and I like the the sort of reluctance to use talking heads, which yeah. which you know documentary should evolve like all other forms yeah. of film. And I I I think that's a good decision. And I think that the way I think he very I, he's quite inventive with his editing and the, and the, some of the footage, like the cartoon sequences that we were talking about earlier, that he uses to accompany all of the audio, yeah, is often really well edited and chosen. And that really clever, funny technique that he just sort of discovered in the editing room of sometimes it looks like the archival footage they're saying yes. the thing that they're saying on the soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> he really has to put their names prominently on the screen, though, mm. every single time someone talks, because not only Nolan Liam, yeah. but all of them, yeah. they all sound very similar. Yes, They're all they blokey males from Mancunians a certain part of with, Mancunians. with impenetrable accents. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And indeed, along the way, at one point, they pick up a producer um, who's totally new, like from outside the Mancunian yes. circle. And he's got, he's not even super posh, but he's got a somewhat <laughs> posh voice and he sounds so different. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, and again, there's, there's a sort of parallel with eight days a week there. And, yeah. um, yeah, the, um, I, yeah. The Liverpudley and the Mancunian. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. The posh London BBC accent. Yeah. Now, how do you think the film would play for someone who just either couldn't, couldn't care less particularly about Oasis or, you know, was young, say they were like 19 and missed Oasis? Well, I think, I think, it, and, you know, that's largely me. I'm completely indifferent to, to Oasis. And I r- largely really, really enjoyed it. Mm. And I think it's a, it's a very particular moment in musical history and British cultural history captured very, very well with a lot of energy. I, th- I, think, I don't think you need to be in any way an Oasis fan to enjoy this film or even a, or a music buff, really. Yeah. It's cool. a really good story, largely really well and imaginatively told, I think. I think you're right. I think that's great. I think that is true. And because it's got the brothers thing, the Cain and Abel thing, you know they don't speak to each other at the moment. Apparently. So I've heard. <laughs> yeah. No yeah. one's surprised at that. Yeah. So Matt said he had to have two different premieres that he flew to <laughs> in a helicopter. Really? Yes, yes. Oh, good. You know, one three hours God. after the other because it's a two-hour film. How exhausting. Uh, I, I do think it's a little bit too long. Do you? Yeah. I don't know with music documentaries because to me they've got it like a like a their own thing because every time you know they're playing the music as mm. long as you like the song well yeah, you can sit through that's that that's true that's true know? but can I can I just say just just on that topic of you know whether this film would 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 appeal yeah. to people who aren't hugely interested in the in the subject matter the main reason I think it works and it does is that this film is is quite different I think to your sort of genre expectations of what a sort of artistic bio biographical documentary would be in that mm-hmm. there aren't no one in this film is saying that Oasis were these towering musical and cultural geniuses and no, in fact at the end of the film there's this there's this quote where where Noel very 
in a, in a very sort of uncomfortable way, basically confesses that he didn't think they were really the best in the world at anything <laughs> and that they just sort of captured this thing and made all these people come together and it caught fire and all these people got involved. And I really think you get a sense of that. You know, it's a mm. band that was signed after one gig yeah. with five songs. Yeah. And six months later, were one of the biggest bands in the world. Yeah. And it's that's just a really unusual story. That doesn't happen anymore in the music industry. Even small labels will not approach an artist until they have several million YouTube or other online followers. And it's so it's it's this sort of remarkable story from a different world. Yeah, you're I right. Think. And it is that that supersonic ascent, that that stratospheric ascent that is so mind-boggling. Was that an intentional pun, CJ? It was very nice if it wasn't supersonic. Well, no, I use that. I oh, right. use that. Okay. Yeah, no, yeah. No, he's obviously, un- you know, of all the names he could have, I mean, he could have called it Champagne Supernova. You know, he's yeah. obviously chosen Supersonic because I think yeah. it is that stratospheric ascent yep. that is also just jaw-dropping and mind-boggling still to this day. As you Absolutely. say, in six months from yeah. an unsigned band who was sort of desperate to get on a crappy bill. They had five songs. Yeah. They'd never played live. Yeah. <laughs> and Liam's ability to sing... And sing so well. And at, at one point when they're recording in the Welsh mm. place and the, and the producer's just like, I've never seen anything like it, you know? Well, and there are, there's great, and I knew some of the, I'd read about some of these anecdotes previously, but they're really well depicted in this film. There are great anecdotes in the film of just how extraordinary they were in the studio. Yeah. And there were, there are, and I won't sort of spoil the fun, but there are a couple of tracks in the first album that Noel wrote and recorded <laughs> that night. <laughs> Cut it, and it's like we need a single. All right, you guys bugger off for dinner. Yeah. I'm going to work on something, and, they, and then they came back and they said, "I've got it. I've got the first single," and they did it. And then there's also, you know, great stuff of the producer working on what's the story, Morning Glory, talking about how extraordinarily efficient they were. They would take, yes. they wouldn't have two takes, yeah. and be done. And they basically recorded that album in a week. Yeah, that yeah. doesn't happen. Either Song of day, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I came off liking Noel very, very much. Yeah, I like. I came off liking him more. Right. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, so that is Oasis colon Supersonic. Uh, it's a film by Matt White Cross. Matt with one T. It is showing as part of the British First, sorry, the BBC First British Film Festival. Uh, you can find them on the web. Uh, that's in Australia. It is showing in cinemas in England, and I'm sure it's doing all sorts of other releases around the world. Obviously, it'll play best in England. You know, I'm sure. You know that naturally, it's got a cinema release there, and I can imagine seeing it. Oh, neither of us saw it at the cinema. We saw screeners on devices, but I can imagine seeing it in the cinema would be quite a great experience, especially if you are a fan of the band. Also, if you go to my film blog, filmmafia.com.au, you will be able to read Jim Flanagan's review of the film. Hopefully, the first of a few more now from the sublime to the ridiculous Jim just in the last couple of minutes mm. you said you said you wanted to talk about sort of the ongoing updating remaking yeah. retooling rebooting of old intellectual properties specifically film and television properties mm. into new television through the prism of Westworld and I think yeah. that's a good thing to talk about yeah we're not I... the only ones in the in the podcast sphere and the radio sphere talking about it but it is no. something interesting well it is interesting and I, I'm just I, I'm sort of almost concerned a little bit that it's it's an increasing trend in in sort of hallowed, cult, revered films being given the the serialized television treatment. And I'm a massive fan and exponent of television as a very, very serious equal art form to film. So that's not my concern sure, nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and look, I, and I've and I've been watching Westworld and Westworld, and I have 
quite mixed feelings about it as a series. And I just think it's a curious cultural phenomenon yeah, it currently. Is. Well, here you go. Check out this. Yeah. Westworld, which I loved. It was a mm-hmm. film of Oh, childhood. I love the film. I yeah. love the film. Yeah. I can remember every sequence. I just loved it. I must no, have seen too. that film 10 or a dozen times. I thought Yul Brenner was the coolest man in the world. Me in too. And he was, was so good. Me too. Yeah. And every beat of the film <sighs> draw. It's so worked. Absolutely. So worked. And Jurassic Park, of course, is the same. Yeah. It's exactly the same yeah. movie to the point that even the, the dinosaurs can't see you if you're not moving, the yep. robots can't see you well, if you're not Well, and both moving. written by Michael Crichton. Yeah. So that, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's, his, it's yep. his remake of his own. Yep. But um, what do you think of the series so far? Well, the series, well, just before we get to the series, mm. I just wanted to point this out. Westworld, great film from the 70s, but not considered, hasn't gone down as a classic in the same way that certain 70s sci-fi has. But... Everyone was waiting to see this HBO mm. Westworld, you know, hugely yeah. anticipated. But uh, simultaneously, this is going on, and I couldn't. There's nothing I would rather see less. Mm. Lethal Weapon is being remade I as a have... series by like one of the networks, yes. and you know, and and Twelve Monkeys has its own series yes. now, and there are seven or eight more that we can, yeah, it's we weird. Battlestar Galactica, scream. of course, was very successful. Yep. Scream, yeah, yep. yeah. So they're um, happening everywhere. But what I mean is, they're not all they're not all sort of high class. Like no. I can't imagine that Lethal Weapon no. needed to be done. No, look, you wouldn't have thought. That. But look, Westworld is it's this massive. Massive new, you know, prestige HBO beast. Totally um, prestige. You know, Nolan, Chris Nolan's brother, is the executive producer, yeah. and the main writer attached to it. Yeah, and it just it just con- and it just concerns me a little bit that it would appear television is starting to do. You know, that American television is starting to replicate people's concerns in the studio system and, you know, the, the yeah, argument has been that the studio see. system only produces sequels and comic book films and, you know, the, over the last 10 years and all the good work is being, pro- and innovative work is being produced in television. Now, all of a sudden, it would appear television is also starting to increasingly mine the past and yeah. my concern with Westerworld, I've only seen, you know, the, the first handful of episodes as everyone else has, is that I'm not seeing anything new in this so far that the film doesn't do and doesn't do better. I... That I would agree with. What I think I'm seeing, I've only seen the first three um, that are so far available. I'm seeing the fact that I guess that they are they are totally planning on mm. elaborating on all the questions of the film are raised that it couldn't really set about answering in in a hundred minutes. Yeah, and look, you're right, and I'm probably jumping the gun, and certainly it has suggested all sorts of things, and especially with the sort of Anthony Hopkins mm. character and his positioning in the series. Sure, I'm f- I'm fine for this being a hugely metaphilosophical, long-running series, and you know maybe we're being a little bit premature after three episodes, yeah. but but so far. I, it's it's yeah. it's not really happening for me. I mean, to me, the big question that I did not ask myself mm. as an eight-year-old or whatever I was when I was yeah. enjoying watching Westworld on the VHS that I'd copied off the television, <laughs> I certainly was not asking myself this question as, as the eight-year-old, was what happens when you are allowed to rape a robot. Yes. You know what I mean? Which is a deep, <laughs> profoundly uncomfortable, very interesting question. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think this this series is already asking that and will ask that more, is the, the ethics and morality yep. of sex with robots mm. that are so human-like yep. that you don't... That you can't tell. Well, and and that's the thing I like the most. Let alone killing them. Yeah, yeah. And the thing that I like the most in the pilot was um, the... Um, the I've just forgotten it. The Ed Harris character yeah, yeah, immediately yeah. is this terrifyingly creepy um, presence. Yeah, and yeah. he's, he's the Brenner f- character, but flipped because yes. he's human. He's by far the most interesting thing in the first three episodes. Yeah. Now the um, the interesting thing too is 
that in the movie mm. you could identify them by their hands. Yes. It was that classic thing of like, you know, an artist could never get the hand yeah. right yeah. and the artists of this world couldn't get the hands right. So you could identify them. So you'd yeah. know who to shoot. And in this you can't identify no, them. They've dumped that. And mm. the, that has to come into play. Mm. Like that has to be, there has to be a, a strong reason that yeah. you can't identify them. You think that's a dramatic device they're keeping in their back pocket for a Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because you would think that, especially in the West world, you know, there's a, there's this whole thing going on that you can't shoot. They can't shoot you. You can shoot them. Yep. But theoretically, yep. if we're both guests and mm. we don't know each other are guests, I yep. can't shoot you. Yeah. But I could punch you. Yeah. You know? Or or worse. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Or, or yeah, I could rape yep. you. No, no, I'm well. real. I'm real. Or, you know, like something happens in episode three, um, a, an act of physical violence happens yep. that... You know, you don't know. It's yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But look, anyway, yeah. let's let's hope yeah. that they are going to do something really yeah. thematically interesting with it. They've sort of alluded to that. I'm just not really seeing yeah. it so far. And to also, me, it's all theme and no heart at the moment. Yeah, it is. Like it's to me, very... it's 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 very cold, hard science fiction for me at the moment. So I'm enjoying watching it on a on a brain level, going like, what is Jonathan Nolan on about? I have no emotional investment. No, and it's full of. Real, some really bad, clunky expositional dialogue as there's well. Some you bad know, dialogue for a stop. Yeah, yeah. those sequences out on the bridge in the sort of HQ in the first couple of episodes are really yeah. pretty dreadful. Yes, every every scene between the, like the main the creators stuff. of the game yeah. just is bad. It is, and the woman from Borgen who I love so much, yeah. Bridget Nudsa yeah, Sutton or whatever. Nothing to do so far. Oh so. no, and and yeah. and. And bad. Yeah, she's not, yeah, she's yeah. not, no, she she's looks, not being good. She looks deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's Westworld. Look, everyone's watching it. Everyone's talking yeah. about it. I'm sure. Let's see. Let's 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 let's, see. let's um let's reassess yeah. at the end of the first series. Maybe go to my blog www.filmmafia.com.au. Filmmafia, all one word, where you'll find Jim Flanagan's review of Oasis Supersonic. Uh, if you want to find out when it's playing in Australia as part of the BBC First British Film Festival, just look them up on the web. Basically, uh, they're playing all over Australia and the dates are scattered around late October and into early and mid-November. So quite a few chances to see it and I'm sure there's going to be a big VOD release. I think... I think you know there should be two versions. We, you know, when we, mm. when we were talking about how long, and mm. you know, because yeah. I think eight days a week is too short. I think eight days a week is only ninety minutes. Yeah, it's a lot shorter well, than yeah. Than like if this. you don't stay for the half hour yeah. bit at the stadium, yeah. then it's only ninety minutes, yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. too short for mm. the Beatles. Um, <laughs> and this at two hours or two minutes, maybe as a film, feels a little too long. But then again, mm. I could also imagine it being five hours because every time they played, yeah. letting the whole song play. You mm. know what I mean? But yeah. I would imagine that is something you'd. Experience you can have a sort of fan by turning on and off in the box yeah, set. Yeah, fan version. Yeah, geek yeah. Oasis geek cut. Yeah, but there's no more box sets. That's the thing. It would have <laughs> to sort true. of be, yeah. you know, like on Netflix, yeah, there'd be two demand. versions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, do you want the the, yeah. the cinema version or the the geek version? Surely we're not. Yeah, surely that's that we're not far off that. You've been listening to CJ and Jim Flanagan on Movie Land. Thanks to Matt Whitecross for uh, speaking to me from London. Make sure you see a film at the cinema this weekend. Take care. Place to